Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This week's episode is brought to you by Facebook, which has a new podcast called Three and a Half Degrees, The Power of Connection. This podcast brings some of the smartest minds in business together to talk shop, exchange ideas, and share the stories behind their successes and failures. Each episode features two of the smartest people in business today. In this episode, Stephanie McMahon from WWE and Gary Vaynerchuk of VaynerMedia connect to discuss the power of family. Look for three and a half degrees spelled out wherever you get your podcasts or visit facebook.com slash three and a half degrees to learn more and subscribe. That's three and a half degrees, a new podcast from Facebook. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor at Adweek. And with me back again, we've got Christina Monlos, brand marketing editor for Adweek. Christina, how are you? I'm doing so well. The Super Bowl is over. <laughs> yeah, and you sound, so you is sound like a complete. Brands. Yeah, you know, all this like massive weight is lifted off your shoulders. Of you, you in one week you had to pull off our Super Bowl coverage plus our massive two day Challenger Brands event. So congratulations on coming out the other side. Thank you. I feel like one of those people who you know when they're sick and the and the color has returned to their skin. So <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's great, you, you guys. You know, I've I've started doing this thing lately where, and this sounds dumb, but like where I take a moment to appreciate being healthy oh my god you, you know yeah because like i, I like right now we're, we're going through the i've been okay but we're going through this phase where like literally entire schools in my uh in my region have been shut down by the flu and like kids are getting sick constantly everyone's sick around me and it's just one of those moments where you can be like man my head doesn't hurt i can breathe <laughs> like just the little things where you're like you know life's all right i'm okay <laughs> I mean, uh, we only have one life, so might as well appreciate it. Here to enjoy us, uh, enjoy this uh, this reappreciation of the world around us is Diana Pearl, a brand marketing reporter at Adweek. Diana, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Also happy about the end of Super Bowl and Challenger Brands. And being alive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we are here today to talk about Challenger Brands. As we've mentioned, uh, this past week we had this big two-day VIP event uh, that uh, w- was honestly one of our biggest events ever uh, that we've done. And we'll be talking a lot about that and about some of the keynotes. Uh, but then we're also going to be talking about our Challenger Brands issue of the Brand Week. Uh, I believe it's a quarterly now print magazine that we do, Christina. Yeah, it's quarterly. quarterly. Crazy enough. Um, Launching a print publication in the in the late 20 teens. Mm-hmm. Look, look at us bucking trends. We're just doing it. 
<laughs> yeah. So the, we dedicated the most recent issue to Challenger Brands. Uh, we had this big event, and we've got so much to talk about from our coverage of that, articles that Diana has, has written and Christina's written and edited, uh, and a lot of these events. And so, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's dive into it and learn about Challenger Brands. Christina, why don't you uh, start us out by helping us define Challenger Brand and the difference between that and just any old startup. Yeah, um, I think with Challenger Brand, you're often talking about a brand that has seen a space and sort of been like, this is stagnant. Why do we do the things this way? Let's totally revamp them. And that's why it's easy to point out like Casper, which was the cover star of our latest edition of Brand Week. Um, Because, you know, you think about the mattress experience, buying a mattress sucked. They wanted to reinvent that process, and so they challenged a whole industry. And that's kind of how we're approaching challenger brands, is these these brands that have been able to make you rethink how something should be done and, you know, take it from whatever stagnant level it was at. Would you say that's that's right? Yes, I would say that's right. I feel like a lot of times uh, challenger brands, like the products or services they sell, aren't exactly something that you traditionally think of as, you know, like sexy and fun and innovative. It's, you know, it's mattresses or razors um, or luggage, you know, when you think about like a Harry's, a Dollar Shave Club, Away, Casper, um, but they're really able to kind of take this segment and switch it up and make it sexier. You you know, because... (laughs) Because I'm an old, old man these days, uh, my interests now include having a Consumer Report subscription and not just the print subscription, but that like digital one that gives you the deep dive where you can chart everything, which is like I've realized lately is the consumer equivalent of, of being the person who owns like the one person who owns a pickup truck. Oh like everybody God. comes to you, <laughs> everybody comes to you. It's like, hey, so I'm buying a blender <laughs> and um <laughs> It's like, yeah, let me look that up for you. And uh, the, but what's fascinating is that a lot of these disruptors, these uh, startups that a few years ago were kind of, not to say novelties, but you know they were a relatively small percentage. They have really toppled now that now that Consumer Reports has had time to really start testing a lot of these products and get them in the mix over the long term. They are really kicking the ass out from under these industries, and so it's not. It made me realize. I mean, maybe that's an obvious thing, but it made me realize it's not just about convenience, right? It's not no. just about. They get a mattress to your door. Wow, isn't that nice, especially for people who live in the cities? It's like the quality of the mattress. That's how I ended up getting – we ended up – I always hesitate to name any brand on anything. But Mm -hmm. uh, we ended up with an avocado mattress, and it was just because you know Consumer Reports is like, this is the best mattress we've literally ever rated. And, you know, they ship it to your house, and it pops up. And Casper did extremely well, too. Uh, Those are just – it's a different type. Those are foam mattresses, so I'm not pitting one against the other. But, like, it just really got to me. I was like, man, almost all of these in the top rankings are these category disruptors. You know, so so they're having an impact on quality, not just on convenience. Yeah, that that's absolutely um – That's a great point. I think that often when talking about challenger brands, you can sort of get someone with like a, oh, okay, yeah, let's see how long they'll be around. But really, you know, with these brands, like obviously some will succeed and some won't. But at the end of the day, they're going to have an impact on that category. And that's what's so interesting right now. Well, let's talk about some of the speakers that we had at the event. 
I'd say the biggest name in terms of kind of your mainstream awareness is going to be Bethany Frankel. Uh, she got her career started on uh, Real Housewives of New York. That was, what, 10 years ago? I think, yeah, about 10. I think it might have been 2008. Wow. And uh, so she, I mean, talk about, like, reality show stars kind of have this, uh, you know, bad reputation for their business practices that come out of those. Uh, you know, some have been elected president, too. But, like, the, you know, it, it typically they don't re- result in these kind of very serious business endeavors. I'd say she is the very stark exception. Uh, Diana, tell us a bit about... Um, you know, the business she launched and and how it has grown. Yeah. um, Bethany Frankel launched Skinny Girl, which is this like line. It started as a like low calorie margarita. And I thought it was so funny during her uh, talk at Challenger Brand. She said that it kind of all came from she loved those like slushy drink machines that you see in like New Orleans or Mexico. And she wanted to find something that kind of was like that, that had was lower calorie and all that sort of stuff. And she was just making it her on her own on the show. And um, then people were like hearing about the recipe on the show. They were asking bartenders for it. And she realized like, I need to monetize this. Um, so then it, she came out with, you know, the actual skinny girl margarita in the bottle. And it's really developed into this huge thing. They sold to Jim Beam. And now they have, you know, skinny girl vodka, skinny girl sangria, skinny girl wine. Um, I'm pretty sure they do clothes and there's snacks. It's developed into this whole like lifestyle brand rather than just uh, what it started as the the margarita. The uh, I just have to point out for those who I'm, I'm going to see how many show, how many episodes of the show I can mention the good place on. Uh, but one of my favorite gags on their uh, like parody brand that they had is that uh, Eleanor Shellstrup, the main character, uh, dies while buying a large bottle of Lonely Gal Margarita mix for one, (laughs) 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 which I've always thought was like a nice little Lonely Gal. (laughs) Has that, you know, I don't know if she got into this on stage, but every time I hear the, the name Skinny Girl, I'm just like, how can this brand name you know, really survive in 2019 with so much awareness of kind of, of body shaming and of body issues. Like, has she addressed kind of how that, you know, how how they feel about that name or, or, or how people feel about it? Yeah, she didn't address it at the event. And I do think that raises a fair point. Um, maybe it will change later on. But for now, I feel like it's so associated with her. And um, to be honest, I haven't heard it discussed as being super problematic. Like in the past, I don't feel like she gets a lot of flack for it. Um, Christina, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, if you've heard different things, but I definitely see why if you just heard it for the first time, you'd be a little like, oh, um, but that wasn't something she discussed at the event. Well, what were the what were the those lollipops, like the weight loss lollipops that were all over Times Square? Oh, um, yeah. That's a different brand. That's like one of those yeah. fit tea, like which basically are teas that make you poop a lot um, <laughs> to lose weight, uh, to, to be honest. Um, and those were like, yeah, I forget what the tagline was, but that's different from from Bethany's brand. Yeah, no, sorry. I wasn't trying to make a connection yeah. between the two. It's just I remember something about the name. It was called like Skinny Pops or something. And something I remember, along those lines. Uh, yeah. I remember people were, were not not happy about that just that that naming but anyway didn't mean to linger i was just curious if that's come up just that's one of those things where maybe 10 years ago wasn't as uh much of an issue as, as might be launching it today yeah yeah for sure it's a thing i wish she had addressed i mean i laughed just then but that's because anytime i hear the word poop i laugh which you know <laughs> but it's it's no laughing matter to um to really like you know address a certain kind of weight with a brand i think that that's something that a lot of people have been trying to get away from and people like 
again, good place reference, Jamila Jamil, um, to, to try and stop that. So, you know, um, yeah, she didn't address it there. I don't know if it was necessarily the, the place for her to do it, but I do hope she addresses it at some point. Yeah. Well, it's almost like if you launched Weight Watchers today, you wouldn't call it Weight Watchers, right? They rebranded yeah. like, it. Well, they rebranded. They're yeah. WW now. So weird. <laughs> but, yeah. But you know what I mean? It's like weight is not the thing. Like people now, it's brands like that are more focused on the, the, this kind of less... The uh, objective one metric of weight and and more about all these different aspects. We've just kind of modernized the way that we that we look at these things. Um, and I, and I do wonder how brands launching today uh, and obviously these category disruptors have to really think about that. And sometimes that's to their advantage. But let's uh, so so Diana, what were some of Bethany Frankel's lessons in terms of what she learned? I mean, she obviously she had a head start. It's not like she's starting out in a garage with no money. Um, you know, she had a heck of a launch pad. Um, but what challenges did she run into? Yeah, I mean, even just her talking about like going on The Real Housewives, it was clear that she kind of saw it as an opportunity to, you know, do something bigger and that it could be this launching pad to kind of give her like a a way to, you know, she said that she went to culinary school to become a natural food chef. And I've only actually seen a few episodes of The Real Housewives and it's the very early ones. And I remember her talking about that, how she was like trying to brand herself on the show as like this food expert and somebody who was, you know, really into healthy eating. And it kind of really helped her parlay that into launching Skinny Girl and having a food and beverage brand of her own. Um, it sounds like she isn't really a huge planner. She wasn't somebody who, you know, when she was going to launch Skinny Girl, did this, you know, 10-point business plan and very detailed. She's more of somebody who relies on her gut and her instincts, um, which I think is an important lesson in this age of, you know, you feel like you need to plan every little thing, which obviously, you know, not all of us have our celebrity name to rely on when launching a business, which can kind of help uh, with the bumps along the way. Um, but I do think it's a good lesson in, you know, trusting your gut. And a lot of times your first instinct is the right one. Um, she also was just very hilarious and clearly has such a, a bright personality that it makes sense why she does well on reality television. The You know, there was a comment in uh, the write-up on her presentation that, that you did where um, she she said basically that there's this importance of being first, uh, right? She says, uh, what I did hadn't been done before being the first low-calorie cocktail. And that one reminded me of something like Halo Top, right? You want to be the first Halo Top, not the seventh Halo Top. Like, it's not, it's not to say there had never been another low-calorie or whatever, you know, ice cream, but they have just dominated that space. You know, it's like we've talked about on this podcast, Halo Top takes up like half a freezer in my grocery store. Like, it, and it wasn't even there a year ago. But it's because they've seen this trend of, oh, okay, people want healthier ice cream and boom, this this brand was ready to go. Uh, so sometimes, and I think we've seen before this, to, to go way back, uh, 2008 era, uh, when uh, when Real Housewives was, uh, was just putting Bethany Frankel on the air. No, but, but young, young Twitter, uh, Twitter at one point had 111 competitors. Uh, like other platforms that did the exact same thing Twitter did because no one knew. And Twitter was just first. And that was it. That was really all Twitter had going for it was first and kind of some publicity. But they weren't the best necessarily. It wasn't the, you know, it didn't have the most features. It honestly had like the fewest features. Uh, But Twitter persisted, you know, because it was first and it did it and it kind of got out of the gate with a nice opening platform. Like their equivalent of, 
of, uh, you know, being on Real Housewives would be South by Southwest, right? Like mm-hmm. they blew up at South by Southwest. They had this initial burst. And so anyway, that just... I, of all the things I thought I would be thinking about reading that article, Twitter, <laughs> the launch of Twitter wasn't one of them. But, you know, to think that that went from being a category with 111 direct competitors to essentially zero. You know, like Twitter has no direct competitors anymore. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I even think that about somewhere, something like Casper, you know, they weren't the first, but they were one of the first. Um, Tuft and Needle actually came before them. But, you know, you think about all the mattress DTC brands that have launched since, but Casper's really the one that has the most name recognition. And I think being early for them was a, a huge help for their business. Well, let's talk about uh, Levi's CMO, Jensei, uh, was also a presenter there. I'm a big fan of Jensei's. Uh, she is just one of the most fascinating CMOs. Uh, we now, as I've mentioned on this podcast, we now own a uh, another podcast called uh, Marketer Moves, CMO Moves. Um, you should uh, definitely check out the episode uh, where Nadine, uh, Nadine Dietz uh, interviewed uh, Jensei because it is such a good interview, such a good episode. But uh, So I was excited to see that we'd have her at this. Uh, Levi's, Christina, tell us a little bit about, I, I feel like I'm kind of outside of the Levi's Target demo. Uh, you know, they're very much <laughs> millennial focused these days and fashion forward and all this other stuff that misses me, uh, quite a bit. But, um, but tell us about like, w- what is Levi's today versus, you know, Levi's of 1985? Like how, how have they kind of defined themselves as a brand? Well, I think as Jen was talking about Levi's for, you know, the nineties and the early aughts, they'd kind of, they'd kind of been in this position where they'd been the dominant brand they didn't have to try as much and so they weren't and you know what she was sort of talking about was that they've challenged consumers perception of them and really become a brand that cares about democracy and inclusion now you might be like why would I want my jeans to care about to, to, to care about those things but I think it's you know along the lines of Getting younger consumers who are more values-based in their um, purchases to to sort of woo them with these like campaigns about voting or you know campaigns where you see people who actually look like you in them. So it's been it's been a lot of stuff like that. And then you know Levi's has the best high-waisted jeans. So if you're going to wear high-waisted jeans that are, you know, true denim, I feel like a lot of people go Levi's. Yeah, the, uh, you know, one of my favorite comments she she's made, uh, she made it on our CMO Moves podcast as well, is that she um, she sees Levi's and she has always seen them since she was uh, a kid. She's seen them as a symbol of democracy um, because she was a Olympic gymnast. Uh, Jensei has this fascinating career going back, obviously, to young childhood gymnasts or put into that, you know, that rigor pretty, pretty young. And so she was traveling internationally for the Olympics and for these tournaments. And they would bring Levi's as the currency. You know, this was such an 80s trope, but they would bring them as the international currency to give to uh, the the Russian athletes primarily, but any of the communist bloc uh, athletes as either a gift or as trade. Uh, but, you know, that was that was the thing that everyone wanted who did not have access to democracy that they did not have access to Levi's. And so to her, that image always stuck in her head. And today, you know, there's almost a certain like when you say that in the Reagan era, there's a certain kind of East versus West, uh, you know, almost uh, kind of isolationism a bit in the sense of it was an American brand. But these days she interprets that a little bit differently, interprets a symbol of democracy, meaning something where they have a bit of a 
obligation to wade into political discussions, right? I think there are some brands like Levi's who, you know, they've been around for quite some time and they're able to make a statement like this um, and sort of, you know, rock the vote and all of that sort of stuff, like be able to to make these changes with their brand or stand out with them and, you know, or even revisit them. Or there are brands like um, Patagonia, where it's been, it's always been part of the brand, and they're just more vocal about it now. Diana, I'm curious, you know, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s when Levi's and denim were kind of in their early heyday. Uh, you know, everybody wore denim and like the denim brand that you picked said so much about you uh, fashion wise. You know, there was Jordache and Lee and uh, Calvin Klein and all that. And the, so the 80s were like this, uh, you know, prime time for for denim. Uh, what does Levi's mean to you now as, as a, you know, a younger consumer than me? Like when you think of Levi's, what do you think of? I think of Levi's as being very much like a cool denim brand, but having almost like a vintage feel. Like that's where you go to get the very like stiff, high-waisted denim that, you know, looks like it could be something that you got at a thrift store. Um, you know, it definitely has like a cool factor. And I'm sure like even if you don't realize it, the that cool factor is partially informed by their, you know, speaking out about politics and and being a little bit more of a brand with a voice. Um, I feel like it kind of has this vibe of like, I don't know, the like a cool West Coast brand, you know, that's very like, quote unquote, woke, you know, and I feel like that product really fits with that as well. I, I remember, what was it like a month ago, there was some articles circulating where fashion experts were predicting the return of, of like low riding jeans. Oh, God. It, I hope not. No, it, they will never return for me. <laughs> look, all these, my entire Twitter blew up with women just being like, no, no. No. <laughs> and I remember because like in the 90s, you know, like Saturday Night Live famously made fun of high-waisted jeans, like with the mom jeans ad, mm -hmm. uh, you know, parody ad. And, and like now it's just like, but man, the reality is that those things are comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, no, they're sometimes comfortable. The true denim can can be a bit rough. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think Levi's sizing can be, can be weird um, because of that because it's like there's no give, but. But anyway, more challenger yeah. brands. <laughs> <laughs> now let's, let's let's talk about our fashion choices. Um, so, uh, Christina, tell me um, the you know what were some other presentations from there, and we don't have to get deep into them, but but speakers or topics that came up that really kind of got the the crowd's attention, got people talking in between events. Uh, what were some of the others? Sure, I mean, I think it's worth noting that not one. But two brands mentioned that their logo was tattooed on more than one person. And Pizza and Peloton both have, uh, have brand logos that people want to tattoo on them because they're such a big part of that community and they care about what those brands stand for, which is kind of wild. I would never tattoo a brand logo on my body, but... You know, to think about challenger brands, not only challenging the notion of like what a brand uh, should be in a certain space, you know, how you should shop for suitcases or, you know, um, get your groceries delivered, whatever, but also that these brands stand for community. I think that was also uh, a talking point. Um, I was also just, you know, I moderated the and pizza one, so I was really interested in what their uh, 
co-founder had to say about democratizing the brand and making it one where everyone at the company gets a voice in decision making. Um, that That's not to say that every brand that was there uh, had something like that, but I think the process behind decision making at these various brands was also something that people were we're talking about tell, tell us about and pizza i've never been to one of those so what's their what's their thing uh they're they're a pizza chain and they're in they have like 25 locations maybe 30 um you know washington uh boston places like that in boston they actually just opened a joint one with uh it's and pizza and then milk products the the milk bar stuff so that's pretty chill Oh, wow. But yeah, um, basically their CEO and co-founder, he has a whole text chain that he responds to any employee at the company and any questions that they have and any suggestions that they have for what this, this company should be doing. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, Yeah. I mean, He's also someone who he went um, and like, you know, presented bills to Congress with Bernie Sanders. He's all about paying people $15 an hour, you know, a true living wage um, or almost, <laughs> I guess, um, if we're being real. But yeah, uh, depending on where you live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I think that's a if you're not only ta- challenging the the idea of what a brand can be in terms of what the brand actually is but how a company should run that's that's something really interesting also if you have something like that like talk to us i want to hear about that the let, let's talk before we take a break let's talk about uh, peloton um they presented we ran a piece called uh, three secrets to peloton's astonishing success uh, which i certainly recommend uh, from our producer Anya fernando um but uh christina anything any lessons you wanted to pull out of that one uh, of you know at first remind us what Peloton is that's different for those of us who aren't as savvy about it? I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, but what sets them apart from uh, from their competitors? Is it a product? Is it a is it a studio? Is it a service? Is it a subscription? So what's, their, what's their it's business? It's a product about? and a subscription. Um, one thing I should note for our listeners, if you were on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, you probably saw there was this viral thread of someone making fun of the way that Peloton always showcases this bike, which is their proposition. They have this this bike that you can buy. It's in your house, and then you can you know um, attend classes while watching them on the screen and doing them. So it's fitness classes in your home when you want them, which is pretty chill. Um, if I were uh, an active person, I guess I would be really into it. But basically, this someone took all of these like product shots that Peloton had, where it's like your Peloton is on this like gorgeous stage in your house, or your Peloton is like, you know, looking out on this uh, beautiful backyard. And you know, you're just showcasing your Peloton in like the best area in your home. Um, yeah, it's always overlooking a river or overlooking yeah, like a seafront. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> if we were a different podcast, I'd say we should put it in the show notes. Um, but anyway, 
So if you're not familiar with Peloton, but you saw that thread, it's Peloton. That's the deal. Anyway, so, so I, I knew about the bike, but what is the what is the service aspect? Like, what do you what do you subscribe to? With You're them? subscribing to classes like you, you know, you can be in a in a a class where you're doing all the different moves you would do on the bike. So you're not alone when you're um, when you're working out. And I think that's part of it is like you get the community aspect of going to class, but you don't have to go somewhere. You can do it on your time and you know, I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, Diana, but it's like one of those things where um, you can do a video whenever you want to, or you can join live classes. Yeah, I believe that is how it works. Yeah. So, 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 so what are the, what are the lessons of their success? Community, as I mentioned before, with, uh, with the, you know, tattoo thing. If you create something that doesn't just feel like a sectioned off brand and you own everything and it's yours, if you create something that's more of a community and, you know, obviously they have an advantage when you're creating classes and all of that sort of stuff, but, you know, you should create a community where people can, as, uh, as they said on stage, like come together and, and have shared experiences. And so that makes it so that people, feel more invested in the brand. I, I, I'm so skeptical of these fitness trend brands, you know, not not in their business model, not anything negative about them, but just in that, like, you know, SoulCycle blows up and then it just seems like everyone I know is talking about SoulCycle and then no one's talking about SoulCycle. And I'm sure SoulCycle is still doing fine. But and, and, you know, we're going to talk about Orange Theory in a minute, too. But, you know, it's just one of these like I, I wonder how much pressure they feel when you are blowing up and when you are catching fires. Like, how do you keep from being one of those? Like, and, and those aren't the best examples, but I'm sure I could think of a bunch of others that from the you know 90s and 2000s where they blow up. And because fitness people are just the finickiest, you know, because it's just by the nature of like you get really into it and you're like, yeah, I'm going to get healthy. <laughs> and then you go and you do it yeah. and you Instagram it and you tweet about it. And then six months in, you're just like, ah, man, I don't know. Maybe I'll just get brunch. Like, you know, and, and <laughs> I, I, I think it wears off. Everything wears off. Um, but I wonder like how these kinds of brands plan to to not get that cultural obsolescence of, of it, especially of it becoming a joke. Like Peloton, I don't know how they react to that Twitter thread, but that was when you really saw, like with with um, SoulCycle, you know, it's like suddenly TV shows, uh, I don't know if I should make our third Good Place reference now, <laughs> but like a lot of TV shows started making fun of SoulCycle and having that in there because it just became the new spin class, right? And so it's like everyone's making fun of um, new Zumba, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's easy, easy punchline. Um, but did you get any sense of like how a, a, a company like Peloton tries to avoid being just a flash in the pan? Well, I think when you spend the the chunk of change required to have one of those bikes in your home and you're always looking at it, I think it's a little harder to ignore. Um, and that's part of it is like these brands are trying to cater to consumers where they're comfortable in their homes and like make that easy for them. And so when you have this like piece of equipment in your home staring at you and you know how much you've invested in it, I don't know if you can, you know, toss that off as much as the place where you could just kind of disappear from it. Um, you know, if it's a class. Well, ev every every uh, treadmill and elliptical and Bowflex machine from my parents' basement would, would beg to disagree. Oh. But no, I... I <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I, I agree. It's just one of those, like, if I did that, I would be like, yeah, I'm getting my mind. You know, the best fitness, not to go down a rabbit hole, the best fitness thing I ever bought is I found one of those, what's it called, the Iron Gym or whatever? It's mm-hmm. like just that thing you, ha- you hang over your door to do pull-ups. It's like the dumbest thing, and they cost like $50 or $60. Oh <laughs> it's God. literally just a bar. And I found one at a thrift store unopened for 8 bucks or 6 nice. bucks or something. And I was like, oh, what a steal. And then I started using it obsessively, and I think it was just because I was like, what a bargain. Oh <laughs> like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the most of this. But it was like the inverse of what you would normally think. Is I was just like, what a, I can't believe I found such a steal. And I used that thing for like honestly until i moved into a new place where it just didn't have those door frames mm-hmm. you can mount it to and so now i've suddenly gotten much schlubbier and and uh but but anyway um, i mean i will say like if any of these fitness brands could actually you know i'm not a fitness person i've tried some of these i can't stick with any of them. i can't afford a peloton but i've tried some of them i don't i don't stick with any of them so i don't have an answer i don't know i'm grasping at straws i'm hoping that a fitness person could uh why am i calling it fitness person <laughs> but someone who you know like katie richards would be the person to ask on how uh, about how these uh how these brands are gonna stick around and whether or not they they have a shot i'd say i really do also think like the convenience of peloton like having it in your home and i know like like you said like the treadmill in your parents basement um but i like i follow a lot of like influencers on instagram who have tried Peloton and a lot of them like just had their first baby and they're like the type of people who would have gone to SoulCycle, you know, two years ago, but they're not, now they're like, I work a full-time job. I have a kid. Like I just don't have time. And this brings that sort of SoulCycle atmosphere into your home. And it like, I think that convenience really like is something that like kind of going off of the Bethany thing, like nobody has really done this before bringing like the atmosphere of a soul cycle class is kind of elite workout experience into your house. Well, let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back to talk about our print issue of Brand Week uh, that just came out about Challenger Brands and some of the great articles that we had in there and some of the other topics we're going to keep digging into Challenger Brands. We'll be back in uh, just a few moments. Thanks again to the sponsor of this week's episode, Facebook, which has a new podcast called Three and a Half Degrees, The Power of Connection. As we mentioned earlier, each episode of this new podcast features conversations with two of the smartest people in business today. Let's listen to a bit of the newest episodes chat with Stephanie McMahon from WWE and Gary Vaynerchuk of VaynerMedia. I think it's okay to make mistakes, you know, as my dad likes to say, but you just don't make the same mistakes. So it's important whenever you've had the opportunity to learn, because that's how you learn. That's how you grow. You know, you could leave a family business, but a family business doesn't leave you. Look for Three and a Half Degrees spelled out wherever you get your podcasts or visit facebook.com slash three and a half degrees to learn more and subscribe. That's Three and a Half Degrees, a new podcast from Facebook. We're back. Um... Let's talk about some of the, uh, as I mentioned, our, our print issue of Brand Week had uh, several great articles about Challenger Brands where we were able to dig a little deeper uh, than even just, you know, with our event. Uh, and uh, some some great kind of topics and examples of what we're talking about. The w- first one I wanted to talk about uh, was Casper. You know, it's the elephant in the room. It's the one that we, we've talked about several times. They are the... The brand you think of when you think of challenger brands. But as I mentioned, too, they, they're also kind of becoming the establishment. And what I loved about our cover story is that it, it really highlighted that there's even a direct quote here I'll read from um, 
Jeff Brooks, the CMO uh, of Casper, where he says, our job in disrupting the old way of buying a mattress is done. We have a lot of work to do there to remain the leader in our segment, but we're very much... uh, we very much view our next disruption as changing the cultural paradigm around sleep. And that was that was pretty much the premise of the entire article. So, Christina, tell us a bit about, you know, how this came about and, and you know, how they're – that's, on the one hand, the super audacious to say, like, we are the sleep brand. But on the other hand, I kind of dig it, and they're right, that there's been this hustle culture for the last few years of just, like, this Gary Vaynerchuk stay up all night – you know, grinding out your second, third job until you become mildly internet famous. And then now they're kind of like, you know, hey, maybe sleep. I mean, maybe, you know, treat your human body well. That's also a a good thing. Not all of us can be Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, But this story sort of came about, uh, you know, we were just trying to think of uh, an established challenger brand, one that had a good story to tell. And, you know, was kind of in the next phase of what it was going to be. I think, you know, we've written a lot about various challenger brands, but there, you know, you want to get into like, how are you not going to be a flash in the pan? How are you not going to be the brand that has one product that you buy every 10 years? And then what? Like, what are you going to do? And so that's the challenge for for Casper. I mean, you don't you don't want people buying a mattress every couple of years. So how do you how do you expand from that? What do you do? Um, so that was something that you know we had Diana explore, and it was her first cover story, which is also very exciting. Hey, congratulations, Diana! Thank you, thank you. Um, so Diana, tell us about this, about, you know, the, our headline, which I love is, uh, that bed, the bed in a box brand Casper wants you to have FOMO about sleeping. Uh, so the fear of missing out about sleeping. I, I love that because in me, again, we, we talked about how the, there was this cultural mindset for a while of like, if you're, you know, if you're not Beyonce, if you're not just cranking out stuff every single day and just grinding it out, then you're somehow like a, you know, a failure in your own life. Uh, and and now, how are they actually making it cool to sleep in and to not do things? <laughs> For sure. I mean, I think a big part of it is just that, like, Casper, the brand, has made mattresses cool. You know, you think about the way buying a mattress was always, like, going to a mattress firm or a Sleepies, and the stores weren't very visually appealing, and it was just, like, mattresses lined up all next to each other. You're, like, there's a salesperson in your ear trying to get commission. You know, there's fluorescent lighting. It's just it wasn't a positive experience. And Casper has sort of made this experience cooler. Um, and that's kind of was just the beginning. And then they started rolling out bedding and they have quilts and sheets and they have a dog bed and they have bedroom furniture. And they're really trying to just own every every segment of sleep. Um, but I think really the fact that they they have good branding and they they look cool and it, they've made you know one of the uh, experts I interviewed for the story talked about how they've made it like a moment of how you get your Casper mattress in the mail and you can put it on Instagram when you unbox it and um, you know buying a mattress was never something you would talk about it was just this blah thing you had to do um, and they've made it into like a moment that's worthy of being captured on social media. Um, and I think just associating that with having the sleep and have just making something like a mattress, something cool goes a long way in like changing people's thoughts, even just about their mattress and wanting them to kind of be a part of this experience. 
Well, you, you know, what cracks me up about mattresses is that, especially if you live in a, in a small apartment, um, your mattresses take up so much real estate in your place, you know, it is just such a massive chunk of your floor plan. And, and yet, you know, we always just thought of them as just utility thing. Um, but now I crack up every time I look at any kind of influencer content to your point, And it's just so many of them, even if the product is not that they're promoting or that they're talking about is not mattresses. They're like always in bed or sitting on the side of their bed, looking out the window. It's just become this like, Instead of the thing you hide in the back of the house and then cover with a futon, or, I mean, not a futon, but what do they call it, duvet and like seven or eight pillows, you know, it's become this thing that's actually, you know, a cool place to be and to spend time. One thing we didn't get into in our story, because um, it just doesn't really fit with it, but one thing I would love to get Casper to talk about is there are all of these delivery people who now have to lug these giant boxes that are really heavy up to people's houses. And people will often try and convince those delivery folks to try and get them like fully into their homes. That's, I don't know. I, yeah, the 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 one I ordered, you could pay the like two hundred dollar upcharge to have them actually bring it in to your bedroom, uh, and, and then the thing kind of exploded out of the box. Like once you unwrap it, it does the rest itself. Um, yeah, I guess if I were kind of infirm or you know if I wasn't just physically able to do that by myself, I but I was like two hundred bucks, no way. <laughs> they literally just dropped it at my door, and then it's just like up to you. And yeah, I mean dragging that thing. Not a very far distance through my house. Those aren't those aren't light. No, no. <laughs> yeah. It's it's one thing I w- I would love to have them talk about because, you know, Amazon plus all of these disruptive brands, I I feel so bad for people delivering packages right now. Well, and it was during what the polar vortex or whatever weather we've been having lately. And like, you know, weather was what negative 15 and just massive snow. And I saw these people online talking about, thank thank God I can order my groceries delivered. I'm like, you monster. Truly. <laughs> I know. I know. I like don't order delivery when that's happening. That's it's, it's, it's creating these yeah. new Or if ethics. you do, you should tip them like a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. At least be, at least be self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a human. It's not, it's not some weatherproof drone. Yeah. <laughs> like driving a, a snowplow. No, through maybe the in 10 years. I mean, not, those not little, now. those little delivery bots that you see, those couldn't make it through the snow. They look like toilets. Did you see the Pepsi yeah. one? It looks like a <laughs> yes. toilet. It does. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so what else, uh, Diana, what, what has Casper learned along the way from becoming just like the, hey, people want a mattress to be able to show up at their door and also buying a mattress stinks, you know, but what else have they learned in terms of like product innovation and where else it could go? Because it, I've seen that like a lot of these companies, the second product they launch is always pillows. It's just like, I, I mean, that's an obvious extension, but like where, where else are they going and where do they see themselves going? Definitely. I mean, they really want to become like the destination for all things sleep. And I mean, you see that in the fact that they have expanded into things like pillows, but now, which I agree is sort of like the go-to, but now doing things like bedroom furniture and a bed frame. And it's like they want to be able to touch every little part of your bedroom. Um, The latest release is the Casper Glow, which is like a nightlight, an adult nightlight, but it you have an, an app that syncs with it so you can set it to start 
like dimming right before you go to bed and it's supposed to like sync with your natural body rhythms and like prepare yourself mentally to sleep and then it will wake you up and it's all supposed to be about like creating a better sleep experience, which is really like Casper's new MO. Um, You know, like the quote that you read at the beginning, like Jeff Brooks said, they've kind of feel like they've disrupted the mattress category, you know, though they don't have the majority market share. I mean, that still belongs to the mattress firms, but uh, of the world, but mattress firm did file for bankruptcy. So, you know, you have to imagine that a Casper will only grow while, you know, a mattress firm is struggling. Um, And they've also had this weird impact. I mean, like you see with a lot of disrupted industries where you've got someone like Beautyrest doing, what was the thing they did at South by Southwest where it was like that Katie Richards did? Yeah, it was um, this whole experience where you were sleeping to the sounds of this, um, I think it was Max Richter. Might be wrong on that, but you were sleeping with like 200 other people while a concert was happening. Yeah. And just like you would not have seen that. No. 10 years ago. No. You know, like no. the company like Beauty Rest being like, let's get a bunch of people to sleep together on stage <laughs> while an so ambient composer weird. blasts music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's- as Katie said, she didn't really sleep. She like kind of slept, but not really. Yeah. How could you sleep in that sort of situation? I would worry about my stuff being stolen, but <laughs> me too. That's just just too. clutch it, clutch it the whole time to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything else you learned about Casper and beyond kind of what we as consumers think about them as just being like, oh, oh yeah, they're the, uh, the the new mattress place, and that they're they're focused on sleep. Anything about their business model or or what they've learned as a business along the way? Um, I mean, I think that they are really – what I found really interesting is they're planning to invest a lot in brick-and-mortar retail. And, um, you know, you think of Casper as a digital-first company. You know, you order the mattress online. You don't try it first. Um, But they're opening 200 brick-and-mortar stores within the next few years, and that was really all because that's what customers were asking for. And I thought that was sort of an interesting tidbit because their whole business model is kind of based on the idea that – you don't need to try a mattress before you sleep on it. And the same mattress works can work for everybody. Um, but this is something, you know, like you are going to sleep on it every night. You want to try it before you buy it. Um, you know, even with the 100-day, they'll come back and return it. You know, it still is just like a hassle to, to return things always, even if it's easy and it's free. Um, and I think that it shows that, you know, even for these challenger brands, there are some things about – maybe the more traditional experience that you kind of can't get away from uh, and that people really do still want. And that's going to be something where the, you know, the process of showrooming, do you guys know that term where people go into retail stores now and sometimes they'll like test out a bunch of stuff and then decide to buy it online um, oh, I, I I worked at a Barnes and Noble. I know all about show. Oh yeah, so terrible. Um, but that's that's something where like the process of showrooming would be appropriate. I hope people start to recognize that like you know the customer service that you get in a retail store, you know, as long as the price isn't astronomically different, you should probably just buy what you're gonna buy there. <laughs> Otherwise, that store won't exist in your area anymore. Well, and I think so much of of the, especially if you think of mattresses, uh, it's not about an experience, right? It's about quantity. It's about mm-hmm. about profit margin, you know. And and so many retailers that you picture, they came about through this Walmart mentality of like. 
just bare bones. Like people just need to get to this stuff and then the sales will take care of the rest. And Casper's, if I'm if I'm right, Diana, they've done some pop-ups and they've done some things that really do focus on making it a relaxing place where you'd actually lie down and be like, oh, okay, this is somewhat of a simulation of what going to bed is like. Definitely, definitely. I mean, a big one I think about is the Dreamery, their like nap shop um, in New York. And you can come and rent a nap pod for, I think it's an hour or 45 minutes. Um, and I've been to the space and it's very like, I I mean, I just think about the, the beauty rest thing where you kind of have all these beds like lined up together, whereas this is such a soothing experience. You know, it's very... Your pod is very isolated. You're not going to – nobody's going to watch you sleep. Nobody's going to see you sleeping. Um, and it's really just like creating these positive experiences that people are, are comfortable with. And that's and that's the thing that I hope that all retailers start thinking about is that, you know, if you're losing share in retail, it's probably because you haven't revamped your retail experience at all. If you walk into a store and it's overwhelming and it's awful and there's really no customer service, then that's going to turn consumers away. You can't do the Walmart model anymore. It doesn't work. Aside from like the dollar trees and the dollar stores that have taken over this entire country, every other (laughs) brand kind of needs to think about what the retail experience is. Yeah. And I think especially I look at the mattress category and I feel like a brand like Mattress Firm was kind of able to, you know, sort of rest on their laurels and just kind of have, because they dominated the category, there was no real competition. There was no one who did anything differently. Um, And now brands like Casper are really forcing these brands to have to think differently and create a better retail experience. And which I really do think is, you know, better for consumers all around. So let's have a little fun. Let's, um, I'll put you guys on the spot. Let's talk about categories that need to be disrupted, (laughs) that need need a new startup to come Mm in. Um, You know, I'm going to say... Just as an extension of of, uh, of what we've been talking about, like bathroom is an area where I'm not talking like the stuff you put on your skin or any, or your shampoo or anything. I mean, the physical parts of your bathroom are still, if you go to any store, those are like the same three brands, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's, it's Kohler or it's whatever. If you go to buy a shower head, you're just basically picking from 17 options. And you're basically really just like, do you want brushed nickel or do you want, you know, what stainless steel or whatever? It's It's the same ones. And that nothing's different than yeah. when I was a kid. Other, you know, toilets other are than the that, same. on toilets, you can now choose a lot of water or some water <laughs> when you're flushing. Well, and I, and I know that like one of the biggest things they're attempting to innovate and to really make widespread would be the waterless toilet, uh, which you know in other in America we have in in many markets uh, enough water where that's not really a thing to just flush it down the toilet, literally. But like uh, you know, other parts of the world, uh, a waterless toilet would be massive. The plumbing industry has really fought hard against that um, in America. There's been some really fascinating articles about it. But I don't know. I just feel like. I don't have the perfect business plan in mind or else I'd be running out doing it. But I do think that like for for how much we talk about, oh, you spend eight hours sleeping. It's like bathrooms, you know, pretty important. And yet they yeah. have not changed in my lifetime. Like nothing about the hardware of a bathroom has changed beyond like, you know, here's some vaguely quote unquote massage type uh, faucet heads that just hit you with different types of like like different sputters of water but all in all it's a pretty awful thing and like you know it's like i go to all these different hotels and stuff and yeah no one's really found a way to make bathrooms the least bit more of a better experience uh christina or diana what, what categories would you like to see uh, disrupted 
Um, I kind of think like the post office and, and delivery. Like I went to the post office one morning in December, and I guess you could say it's December, but I had to wait an hour. To, and then when I finally got to the window, like it was no help. Obviously, the post office is run by the government, so it's a little difficult. But even I've had like such issues issues with UPS. And I don't know. I just feel like there has to be a better a better way to do delivery. And obviously, like, mad respect to all the people who are, you know, delivering packages. I, I think they do a great job, but more even just, like, the way things are run and, like, how if you don't – I guess I say this more as someone who lives in a city and, you know, I can't just get packages a lot of times dropped off on my front porch. I don't have a doorman. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of issues with packages that could be resolved – and there could be like a system or a service that that would make that better. I also think health insurance is is not great. <laughs> yeah. The uh the 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 Amazon delivery vans like I I should know more about these but they are suddenly I remember right before Christmas there was a fleet of them parked in my neighborhood and I I'm not exaggerating when I say fleet like 40 of them. And they're just these kind of like dark gray vans with the Amazon logo on the side. There's something like weirdly dystopian about that. I don't like that um, at all. It's yeah. like they just they drive around in these like dark gray vans. And to their credit, to the point that Diana was just making, Amazon's been trying to kind of modernize the delivery experience, but they're doing it with the recognition that they don't own the delivery medium, right? Like yeah. they don't own the service. So I, you know, these Amazon delivery vans, I don't know if that's something where they're finding a middle ground where they are the delivery service as well. Uh, but man, there's just something, you know, in the 80s, like there, all this sci-fi was about like in the future, there won't be nations, there will just be corporations. And like corporations will be the nation state. And, and I always laugh that off as like, whatever. And then you see this fleet of Amazon vans out running delivery and you're like, Oh, okay. The, maybe this is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I don't even mean like getting rid of UPS, but maybe making a service that like allows you to get your – pick up your packages, like like something like an Amazon locker, but not just for Amazon. And I feel like a lot of times those don't exist or maybe they don't they do and I just – they're not super widespread or something where you could like get your packages. You could pay a fee to get your packages delivered between a certain hour where you know it's going to – where you know you'll be home or – I don't know. I just feel like there's there's lots that could be done. There. I, I crack up whenever I see those like Nest or whatever it is camera ads where they're like catch people stealing stuff off your porch, and I'm like, well, I mean, they'll still get away with your stuff. Yeah, you'll just yeah. you'll just know what they looked like. <laughs> yeah, like, and the comments on those videos are always hilarious because like they'll run as an ad say, you know, make sure you catch the people stealing your stuff this Christmas. I'm like, well. But did they get caught? No. Also, I'm not home. <laughs> if that's the thing, I'm not home. Yeah. It's like you just have a nice video of like, yep. And and my entire next door for my neighborhood is a bunch of people being like, does anyone know these thieves who took the stuff off my porch? No, no one knows them. <laughs> like, That's why they're here. Also, you know, those cameras, they get hacked. You get little creepy people watching your babies. Not good. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the the indoor cameras are are definitely weird. Uh, the one on your facing out of your doorknob, I get less. Like, I don't have one, but I'd get less freaked out by that. Uh, Christina, what what should be disrupted? I think we should go back to having video stores 
choosing something on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or any of the OTT services that you're now going to have to purchase because half of the programming that you like on those services is now going to go back to, you know, the NBCs of the world because they realize that having uh, that programming on OTT services, you know, their own proprietary services will make them more money um, is, you know, it's a nightmare. Choosing something to watch is a nightmare. And all of these companies are terrible about telling you when there's new programming. There's no order to it. It's chaos. I hate it. I want to go back to a video store. I'm not saying anyone's going to go back to a physical version of this. But even on an Apple TV, when you search for something, it doesn't search through everything. Like, there's there's no... The Roke... Good search. The Roku does. I have the Roku on, and it's pretty good. Like if I search for, I, I know, know, but Avengers or whatever, it'll tell me. But Roku like, which is one's chill with uh, with Alex Jones. So no, no, they got rid of him. <laughs> they, that only lasted a uh, like twelve hours. But that until they lasted buckled. twelve hours. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not buying a Roku. Uh, I don't like. Yeah, them no, for every it's it, it, you can't really begrudge any one service for uh, you know it's like. Every service used to have Infowars stuff, and then they all very grudgingly gave it up. Roku just kind of stumbled into that, like, <laughs> bl- bl- you know, just kind of blithely unaware mm-hmm. of the thing. And they were like, sure, we'll add this channel. And then everyone's yelling at them. But they're like, what? No one's ever yelled at us. We don't know what's happening. <laughs> like, and they're, they were literally using, like, customer response, not mm-hmm. maybe not bots. But like they, people were complaining about, it and they were responding saying, "Is this the channel you're looking oh for? I God. hope that helps." Like responding on Twitter, and people were like, "Yes, that's the one. <laughs> take it, take it off." <laughs> but yeah, they, they very quickly reversed course, and I, I've been using a Roku forever. I've generally been happy with it. But to your point, I think like it's th- that you you have to go digging to find that it's stuff a to find that. Oh, oh, it'll 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 sift through all this for me. I think if if they could come up with the digital equivalent of a red box type interface where you just log in and I don't care. I don't care what service it's on as long as I subscribe to it or as long as I have access to it. Like if it's on Google play, cause Google plays the one I never remember. Like there's a ton of movies on Google play. Uh, you just, you just have to actually remember Google hmm. play exists. Yeah. I don't you know, remember or, that ever, but I, and I want, you don't pay for it. You know. I want the curation. I want the curation of a real person. I want these snobby, Video store clerks, a digital version of that. I want people behind it telling me what I should be watching, too. All right. Well, thank you both so much for for joining us for the podcast. I definitely recommend everyone check out. If you just uh, look up Challenger Brands and Adweek, you will find tons of coverage of our event, of the Brand Week issue. Uh, And congratulations to you both on a wonderful event and a wonderful issue. Thanks, Griner. Thank you. All right. Our theme music is by home. This episode was edited by Lane McKibbeny and produced by Anya Fernando with audio production by Josh Rios. Please take a moment, if you have not already, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. Uh, I'm David Greiner for Adweek, and we will be back next week. 